So we come to the end, the end of our retreat, and we must consider the end of the sadhana. It's often said that the ending of sadhana and other practices too is as important as the the practice itself. Uh, Because if you don't end in the right way, you lose the effect of the practice, Uh, you lose it very quickly, it wears away very quickly, But also, next time you come to practice, you've lost a bit of momentum. So completing the the trajectory of the the sadhana is, in my experience, extremely important. If you cut it short, um, particularly, of course, you cut short the the samadhi, but if you cut short the the final uh, dedication, you lose the, the full momentum of the practice and you... You, um, you, you leech it of some of its power so it doesn't work as fully and properly as, as fully and effectively next time so we can look at uh, the ending in, from three different points of view and I'm going to start off by looking at the ending as it's given here the, the verses at the end uh, by this beneficent act, etc. Uh, these are important because they state why you're doing the practice. In, in those verses, to my mind, it, uh, it affirms the purpose on three different levels of the practice. And it therefore, uh, in, in, um, in, in, in wishing that this may happen, you are um, making sure that the practice moves in the right direction, is going towards the right ends, if you see what I mean. By the way, in a sense, those last verses are a sort of commitment to doing the practice again, because if you want the desired purpose, well, you have to continue the effort in this way or some other way of course all the sadhanas in the end mean the same thing but uh, I'll, I'll show you what I think the the three dimensions of the practice of the of the practice are that are indicated in the final verses this is my own understanding which uh, I haven't seen fleshed out anywhere else but it uh, seems to make complete sense of what you're saying. So there's three parts. First of all, you say, through this beneficent act, or beneficent act, may I acquire the two stocks of punya and jnana, and so may I gain clarity on the meaning of non-selfhood. So this is really to do with the the preparation, the build-up. What you're saying in these words is, uh, may I... Um, uh, may I build up the, uh, uh, the merit and jnana that will give me the ability to see non-selfhood as it truly is. So you're trying to build up merit. Doing the practice gives you merit. And uh, merit is not a theory, a theoretical concept. It's uh, something that you actually experience. Uh, a um, a sense of um, uh, starting 
from a more positive basis. Uh, there's a sense that when you do things, you're already full of creative energy, positive energy. Um, so uh, uh, through, through dedicating yourself in the way that we do at the beginning of the practice, by going for refuge, by experiencing your solidarity and so forth, you're building merit. You're uh, creating a strong uh, um, current of energy within yourself that will uh, um, take you into the practice, take you into your life in a more and more constructive and heartfelt way. It's like um, uh, building a channel. I often give the illustration in India for, for karma that uh, when the monsoon comes, to begin with, the land is completely dry and even baked, parched, and the, the rain comes in absolute torrents. And it begins to dig channels. To begin with, it just floods everywhere. But after a while, it finds channels, it ekes out little channels, and it starts to pour more and more down those channels, and eventually it digs, well, really quite deep uh, streams, and uh, all the water is accumulated into those, uh, into those, uh, those streams, and uh, it becomes a raging torrent even, quite powerful. So it's the same thing. As you build merit, you... Uh, the, the energy naturally moves in that direction. You make it easier for yourself to act in that sort of way. The, um, of course, it's the same for jnana. Uh, by your deepening understanding, you are creating a, a strong basis for future understanding. So, for instance, when you reflect deeply on, the, on shunyata, and you come to say the mantra, Om Swabhava Shunya, etc., Shuddha, etc., uh, the more you've reflected on Shunyata, the more you've meditated on Shunyata, the more that mantra will carry the meaning of Shunyata for you, the di direct experiential meaning. There will be a gradual accumulation of understanding, not just of theoretical understanding, but of uh, immediate uh, recognition and understanding. So you're building for yourself a deep channel of, uh, of, 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 of wisdom, even, you could say. Of course, uh, the, the stocks that are spoken of here are probably the, the sambharas, the two sambharas, uh, the punya and jnana sambharas, which we see represented by the two auras surrounding the body and the head of uh, Manjugosha, a blue body aura representing the Punya Sambhara and a green uh, head aura representing the Jnana Sambhara. So uh, this relates to a, 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 um, a background of Bodhisattva theory. Um, the Bodhisattva accumulates um, merit and wisdom so that they have a more and more perfect body and mind with which to help living beings. So you're consciously trying to accumulate the, uh, the merit and the wisdom that will, in the next life, make your, uh, your 
rebirth much more readily um, available for practice of the Dhamma, much more readily available for application for all beings. So uh, you're, you're consciously, if you're on the Bodhisattva path in the traditional sense, you're consciously trying to accumulate a great deal of merit uh, so that that manifests in a, in a future existence, um, in uh, increasing sort of bodily health, uh, vitality, even good looks, um, and uh, no comment. Um, uh, and uh, because, of course, you know, if you're physically uh, 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 good-looking, people want to listen to you. There's even sort of evidence for this. Evidence for this. That's why nobody ever listens to me. Uh, so, uh, but you try to, to develop that sort of physical glow, you could even say, because it's like Bante's not... Is this being recorded? He's not the most prepossessing of, of figures, um, but he has an extraordinary sort of glow to him at his best, which is very, very attractive. I remember when I first was watching him uh, giving talks, I was sort of fascinated by um, him, by his, his body, even though, conventionally speaking, he's not a, a particularly uh, fine... It's not Charles Atlas, anyway. <laughs> um, but you're, 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 you're in, the, in, the, in the Bodhisattva theory, you're deliberately trying to do some some um, um, a bodhisattva bodybuilding uh, so that you've got the sort of body that really uh, makes it possible to practice the Dhamma that uh, uh, is, a, is a, a more readily able to communicate uh, that has the in intelligence to um, communicate maybe many languages and so forth at the same time you're trying to develop a, a body of wisdom um, an accumulation of wisdom that gives you a, a continuing uh, um, depth of understanding that passes from one life to another. I think this may be, and again this is my own speculation, related to the, uh, the two vasanas I spoke about uh, three or four days ago, the two perfumings, uh, the perfuming that comes from our past karma and the perfuming that comes from the uh, dvaya graha, the twofold grasping. Uh, you remember, and that in Yogacara theory, it's these two uh, perfumings that establish through the alia the new manifestation of uh, the full-blown system, as it were. So uh, the Bodhisattva is trying to uh, develop the, the the skillful karma uh, that manifests in a, uh, a a body and a an existence, a, a being that is um, capable of practicing the Dhamma more and more readily and capable of relating to others in a more effective way and trying to accumulate through uh, letting go of the twofold grasping a body of jnana which can uh, um, carry whatever has been realized in previous lives into this life. So I think this is what this is referring to. In a way, what, you, what we're saying is May we not just in, uh, uh, in, 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 for this life's sake, but for future life's sake, develop the stock, the accumulation, it's quite a good 
word accumulation, something sort of stored up, something put together, the accumulation that uh, will, will create the, the most favourable circumstances for our practice in the future, in future lives, and for our communication of the Dhamma in future lives, our bodhisattva activity, our uh, making, putting into effect our sense of solidarity with all beings. This is what I understand we're saying. Through what we've done, at the very least, let it give us punya, let us, it give us a, a, a jnana that can carry through to the next occasion and even to the next life. And uh, may those two accumulations also provide us with a basis for a deepening clarity on the meaning of non-selfhood so that we're, uh, at the same time as accumulating these two stocks, we're letting go of any sense of... Uh, uh, appropriation of grasping onto those two stocks as mine so that they're emerging more and more um, free from selfhood free from self-attachment uh, so that through the, the, the preliminaries of the practice we're getting a, a deeper and deeper glimpse of what it means to be free from self-clinging and a, a, a deeper and deeper glimpse of uh, the freedom of the, the impossibility of there being self within us, an impossibility of there being any essence, any uh, uh, um, dharma uh, that is, has a fixed essence outside us. No svabhava. So that's the first part of the practice, really taking us up to the Shunyata mantra. So we're uh, hoping. We're wishing that through this practice, and especially through this early part of the practice, I would contend, we are going to develop these two stocks and this deepening understanding of non-selfhood. It's important to give ourselves that orientation so that we understand what we're trying to do with the practice. And in a sense, committing ourselves next time we do it, uh, to do it for that end. And uh, myself, I've, I've come to the conclusion I should just take the practice absolutely literally. Um, and uh, I do it as it's set out, uh, whether I like it or not. Three stutis, 21 sadhana, um, <laughs> mantras. Um, I've got that wrong. Um, so that uh, I, I don't give myself any wiggle room, as it were. I just try to take the framework of the practice absolutely literally and just do it. Even if I don't do it very well, uh, I just do it. And uh, I do believe I've accumulated a tiny little bit of, of punya and jnana and got a little bit of clarity on the meaning of non-selfhood. I, th I think that if you take the sort of framework of the practice uh, fairly literally, it won't let you down. It will do what it says. So the second part of the practice, you meet Manjushri. And Manjushri, of course, is the Jnana Sattva. So you're meeting thereby the Manjushri Jnana. Um, so as a result of this accumulation of the, the two stocks and this uh, clarity, relative clarity on the meaning of non-selfhood, uh, may I see manifestedly with exalted mind 
the manjushrinyana, which is free from discursiveness. So your encounter with manjushri um, is with exalted mind, in other words, not the ordinary mind, but the mind raised up, a mind raised up to the level of manjushri uh, uh, by his kindness and uh, um, uh, knowledge and kindness. And without discursiveness, so you're not thinking, you're just in, in, in a realm of pure imagination where Manjushri is simply evident before you, um, uh, manifestedly, that new coinage in the English language uh, that makes a point. Um, it's absolute, man, uh, Manjushri has manifested. I think that's why this uh, manifestedly is given this adverb that's not very usual, um, rather manifestly, which has a slightly more of a connotation of, of um, obviously. Here it means having manifested. Um, so you, you, uh, you see Manjugosha manifestedly. Um, your mind is uplifted, exalted, and thought has stopped. You're beyond the level of thought. So uh, you, you aspire to continue to meet the Manjushri Jnana, the Manjushri awareness, this uh, a, a knowledge that is awareness, awareness knowledge. It's not knowledge in the, in the theoretical sense. It's an awareness, a, a knowledge that is, comes from a direct awareness of the way things are. So you um, aspire in the future, as you hope you've just done, to see Manjugosha directly for yourself, your mind uh, uplifted, exalted, exalted, beautiful word, raised on high, um, and free from any thought. Even if you haven't been able to do it now, you aspire in the future to do that by uh, continually doing the practice. So you, you commit yourself to continuing to do it so that you will experience this level. But it doesn't finish there, of course. After the manifestation of Manjushri comes the Samadhi, which we explored yesterday. And uh, in some sense, you could say the Samadhi is what the whole practice leads up to. And it's what finally makes the practice effective. So having accumulated the uh, stocks of punya and jnana, having gained some clarity on the meaning of non-selfhood, having seen the manjushri jnana with exalted mind, without thought, through the vajra-like samadhi, having abandoned completely the kleshas, contrived and inborn, may I make an end of the nyaya obscuration with all its parts and gain the wisdom of the Sugatas. In other words, become a Buddha. Uh, that's what it's, it's saying. Um, so this Samadhi, as I spoke of it yesterday, has a sort of power, uh, a power that transforms you. It, uh, it shakes you free of the kleshas, the kleshavarana, the veil of... Uh, of um, uh, negative, disturbing mental states, not just the, uh, 
the superficial ones that we experience in this life, but the deep ones, the underlying ones. You remember in, in the Yogacara they speak of uh, of four Atma kleshas, uh, which are the ones that are uh, Sahaja. They, that we bring them with us because of our past twofold grasping. They come with us. So uh, they are Atma, um, Atma Moha, uh, ignorance, uh, the inbuilt tendency to not see. It's not just ignorance in the ne- in the in the passive sense of not knowing, it's ignorance in the sense of not looking, not being willing to see. That's what moha indicates. Atmadrishti is an inbuilt tendency, not just not to see, but to see it wrong, uh, to come to conclusions about things that are wrong, either in nihilistic or eternalistic terms. Um, and that's built in, those two uh, atmaklesias, which are more on the on the uh, cognitive side, and then there are two on the the affective side. There's atma sneha, um, which means uh, infatuation, uh, craving squared. Um, it's very awkward because this is a common girl's name in India. Um, <laughs> presumably, that's what they want to. It, evoke in you but, but of course it doesn't in Buddhist terminology it has a very particular meaning but it always takes, my, takes me aback when I meet a sneha um, uh, uh, so um, sneha in the Buddhist context um, means this uh, very deep self infatuation atma sneha uh, uh, we really are deeply in love with ourselves and we come into this life already with that built in. And uh, then Atma Mana, uh, which is pride in self, which I think of as the, the deep tendency to think that the world revolves around me. Uh, uh, and to think that really I am unique and special, which is sort of built in to the whole business of having an Atman. The whole business of clinging to an Atman uh, requires one to feel that the Atman uh, that one, so to speak, identifies with is really special. So these Atma clashes are built in, uh, both the, the more cognitive and the more affective. And they are the basis for the acquired kleshas, uh, which are greed, hatred, delusion, uh, envy, uh, jealousy, the whole lot. The, 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 the six uh, uh, kleshas and the 20 upakleshas that you find in, um, in the, uh, in the uh, Know Your Mind and uh, Mind in Harmony does touch on them as well. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, the, these uh, the, the, the Vajra-like samadhi, in order to have that samadhi, you push these away. And the effect of the Vajra-like samadhi is to make it more and more difficult for them to appear. Uh, the more profoundly you experience that samadhi, the more you dwell in it, it, uh, it just pushes out anything from which those uh, Atma kleshas and... Uh, 
Paricalpita clacius can emerge. Um, but much more deep and more difficult is the Nyeyer obscuration. Of course, we, we should by now, uh, in the preliminary stages of this practice, got rid of the, uh, the, the gross and even subtle acquired uh, Nyeyer Varala. Uh, the belief in, in uh, substantial entities out there, belief in God, a belief in soul. We should have at least got rid of that at the, the, the intellectual level, at the theoretical level. We should have got rid, through our uh, uh, reflection on uh, the realms that are explored by Majamaka, by Nagarjuna, and Asanga uh, Vasubandhu uh, uh, in the Yogacara, we should have got rid of any trace of a belief that uh, even the words of the Dhamma refer to some essence, to some entity, some substantial something that is apart uh, from uh, the word itself, so to speak. Uh, so we should have traced out the, the, these gross and subtle levels of acquired ignorance. Uh, maybe this needs much more explanation, but this is what's being talked about here that uh, we, uh, we come into a culture with all sorts of views, we need to get rid of those views. Even our Buddhist exploration is based upon a, a subtle breaking up of the universe into uh, entities which, to which we apply concepts. We come to take those entities into which we've divided the universe for realities. This is the, uh, the Marjumaka's um, uh, critique of Dharma theory. Whether anybody actually held that theory is another question. But uh, uh, the Dharma theory was a sort of holding to a, uh, a very subtle form of, uh, of, of substantialism. So we got rid of those. We should have got rid of those. There's a much, much deeper much more automatic, built-in uh, sense of, uh, of substantial reality to I and substantial reality to world, um, which we explored on, on the third day. Uh, so the Vajra-like Samadhi, uh, by taking us beyond all that, at least temporarily, begins to destroy the Nyayavarana, at its roots. Um, when it's destroyed completely, then we gain the wisdom of the Sukhattas. So in the final uh, stage of the practice, we sort of reflect on what we've done and we aspire uh, to make it do all of this. We, we almost, you could say, commit ourselves uh, to practicing it so that it may do all this, when it says, um, thereby may I, and so forth, may I acquire, and so on. Well, it's not going to happen without you making the effort. So, uh, he who wills the end, wills the means. Um, so, if you, if you want that end, then you must take up the means. And here are the means that, within this realm of discourse, we're, we're taking up. So uh, it's very, very important in ending the practice by uh, uh, touching down on why you did it 
what you hope to achieve through it and implicitly committing yourself to doing so. And personally, I, I, I have at times, you know, you do different things at different times in the practice. Sometimes I dwell on this, sometimes I dwell on that. Uh, sometimes I dwell on, on the, the more early stages, sometimes on the, 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 the middle section. Sometimes I'll even dwell quite a bit on these final verses because there's such profound meaning in them, which really, in a way, sort of set in context what you've done and therefore what you aspire to do in the future. So it's important, I think, to make this sort of commitment to fulfilling the purpose of the practice in these terms. Getting together the basis, uh, this um, a powerful accumulation of, uh, of merit through skillful action uh, and of, uh, of wisdom through uh, deep understanding of the Dhamma study and reflection and even realisation of the Dhamma. And then uh, uh, this confrontation, well, no, not confrontation, this meeting with uh, Manjugosha and therefore with his jnana um, uh, in an exalted mood, uh, free from the uh, tyranny of Vitarka Vichara. And then finally, uh, by dwelling in that samadhi, um, sort of, uh, destroying at their roots uh, our ignorance and uh, evil, destroying them at their roots. So, this is the first thing I'd recommend in coming out of the practice. Uh, don't just say the words, at, 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 at least at some point have done some reflection on them. Think about them. The more you've thought about these things, when you say the words, the meaning that you've reflected upon will be present when you say the words. I hope you've been experiencing that a bit with Om Svabhava Shuddha, uh, and even with um, the opening um, um, uh, I, I and all else that moves. I hope it's accumulated more significance. Uh, and uh, one of the things I really hope you get from these days that uh, it's, it's charged up your practice so that when you do it in brief, there will be something of the mood that we accumulated in these, in these six days. I hope that you will experience that. Uh, so um, then, yes, there's this strong sense of, um, uh, of the, the power of the practice and your dedication to it will be present when you say these words. Uh, so think about it, reflect on it. Uh, it, look at the, the idea of the, the, the avaranas. It's a, a very powerful idea. Uh, at the back of it is a sort of um, a metaphor that there's something that's naturally bright and clear. Of course, one can take this too far and roam into uh, a Vedanta. Uh, don't do that. But you, it's as if there's something very, very bright and clear um, which uh, is covered by veils of, uh, uh, of, of evil and illusion, uh, wrong thought, wrong idea. Now, this, of course, reflects back to um, even the Pali Canon, the Samyutinikaya, um, Papasanang Idang Chittang. Uh, radiant, uh, luminous is this mind, but it is uh, defiled by adventitious defilements by defilements that are added to it, uh, 
uh, uh, um, uh, uh, anyway, never mind. Um, Agantehu, yeah? Anyway, I can't remember it now. But anyway, they're added on. So, of course, you can take this metaphor too far, like any metaphor, uh, and you can start to think there is an underlying reality, which is the chitta, uh, which is a false reading of of Yogacara. It's not what's being said. It's being said that uh, uh, development is, is more to do with letting something out rather than adding something to. Um, Abante says, doesn't he, faith is innate, doubt acquired. Uh, so you have to get rid of what's been acquired, what's been added on, parikalpata. Um, uh, but um, yes, so the, the, the metaphor of the avarunas strikes at this sort of image of the sun with clouds in front of it, which then carried through in the, in the sadhana itself. So one needs to spend some time connecting with that, connecting with it doctrinally, and contract, connecting with it uh, imaginatively. Uh, and so on. I can go on, but that's probably enough. These words are very important, and they orient you out of the practice. The, uh, the text goes on to say, um, then he should enter the ways of day-to-day activity and in the intervals when not meditating too he should make all the ways of activity purposeful through being inseparable from the embryo of voidness and compassion well that's obvious isn't it um, by, so, by so striving it is certain that without taking long he will attain the rank of mandatory jnana sattva who transcends the extremes of existence and quiescence um, um, uh, nihilism and eternalism but uh, yes one could spend some time trying to unpack how you make all the ways of activity purposeful through being inseparable from the embryo of voidness and compassion uh, but I want to approach it a slightly different way um, right at the beginning of this series I started by referring to uh, Bante's paper on uh, his, his reflections on the Garava Sutta and his reflection that when the Buddha speaks of um, revering and relying upon the Dhamma he's teaching us how to live and I said that from that point of view you could say that the, the sadhana is teaching us how to live and I think that you can then see that under each of my five previous headings, we're being taught how to live. And the, 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 the way in which we make all the, um, the ways of activity purposeful through being inseparable from the embryo of voidness and compassion is by uh, trying to uh, bring those five themes, five, five um, great themes that the Buddha is teaching us, so that uh, the practice is teaching us, so that we know how to live, trying to see how you live them. So, for instance, the first theme I took from the sadhana was the theme of reverence. So, one needs to, to try to, out of the practice, keep the theme of reverence alive. 
in, in every activity that you perform, having a sense that what you're doing is done in reverence, on whatever level. You remember I spoke about levels of reverence. There's the reverence, the level of reverence that the Buddhas and Manjugosha uh, experiences, which is uh, on a level that, in a sense, we can't understand. It's a mystery. Uh, but that uh, is uh, best understood by us uh, through our own experience of reverence, even though it's not quite the same as our own experience of reverence. So we need to make sure that uh, we revere, but we can't do it on that level. We can't always be revering Manjugosha in a quite literal sense. Um, uh, difficult to get your porridge. Um, uh, you can't be bowing down all the time. You can't be with your eyes closed with him in front of you. But um, you can be making sure that you live in a reverential way. It's hard to describe what one means by that. It means that everything you do is done with a sense of, uh, of decorousness, of uh, mindfulness, of course, and, and, and a certain sense that it's a kind of offering. Um, I remember a, a, a hymn that Bante quoted. Um, it's, it's from the great Thomas Traherne of Hereford Provenance. He, he came from around here. Uh, and um, he says uh, something like, uh, if I can remember back to uh, the school uh, chapel, uh, uh, he who sweeps a room for thy sake with this tincture for thy sake makes that and the action fine so what's been got at here is that if you can keep a sense of something transcendent every small action that you perform is done with this tincture uh, of reverence beautiful phrase tincture um, you know, the apothecary's tincture, which is just a little drop into some medium. So if that, that little drop is there in every action, uh, you make uh, that, the reverence, and the action fine. Uh, beautiful, beautiful phrase. Um, so what that actually means, it's, it's quite hard to say. It's more of a mood, a sense um, I remember once at a convention, always Bante is my example in these ways, I remember uh, it was quite a recent convention, uh, Bante uh, gave a little, I think he, he, uh, he just said a few words before something happened, and I remember him going up to the podium, and by that stage he could only walk with a stick, and his eyesight was, was very poor, and I remember him walking with uh, extraordinary carefulness, but it wasn't the carefulness of, sometimes when people are very old, their carefulness is sort of fearful. It was as if Bante's carefulness was reverential. And when he got to the podium, I remember him taking his stick and sort of hooking it on the side of the podium with, with great care, making sure it's stuck there. And... Uh, to me, what came immediately through my mind was uh, as if he was worshipping. Uh, it, was, it was done with such delicacy 
and sensitivity and uh, a sort of um, care for the objects uh, that he was handling. Um, now, I remember uh, Dogen talking about the, uh, the Zen cook, so, uh, some wonderful things there about this sense of, of reverence in, in, uh, in daily life. I think Dogen is, is particularly fine on this. Now, I remember him talking about treating the vegetables as if they're your own eyes. Don't push that metaphor too far <laughs> because it starts to break down. But uh, uh, you know what he's, he means, that you're, you're taking everything with a sort of sensitivity and care. Um, perhaps that doesn't bring out the reverence element of it sufficiently, but there should be a sense that everything you're doing is done in that way. You're cooking for somebody else, uh, and particularly you're cooking for the sangha. You're doing it with that sort of reverence. You're cooking for yourself. You're cooking for yourself so that you can practice the Dhamma, so that you can do something to at least contribute to human happiness and uh, diminish human suffering. So one tries to have this uh, delicate, sensitive approach to everything one does. Um, and of course, it means one will not speak badly of others. It means one will treat uh, one's, uh, one's utterances with, with, with sensitivity. One will reverence even those who you're, whose ideas you're criticising. This is something I really feel we need to learn in our communication in the order. It can't go on like this. It breaks the order when there's not that reverence for each other. Even if we disagree, that's okay. Even disagreement can be done reverentially with respect but not personal comments and, and criticisms and so forth. It's not appropriate in a public medium. And uh, it's that sort of reverence that we, we need above all. It's something I've had to work on in myself, having something of a, a critical mind and uh, very easily seeing others' faults. It's actually one of the vows I, I still to this day take at the end of the Manjushri Stuti Sadhana. Uh, I don't always keep it, but I will not speak badly of others. And if I need to mention their faults, I'll do it in empathy for them and uh, for some greater good and in the right context. So uh, reverence for each other. Uh, there needs to be reverence for each other, sensitivity to each other. Criticism of ideas is fine, but not of, of each other. Not of any human being, actually, uh, uh, but more especially of order members, more especially of, of those who have given us so much. Uh, so reverence in everything we do, a reverence for our order, a reverence for uh, images and so on. This is something I particularly like about being in India, uh, that people are, are, are actually, on the whole, at least face to face, extremely sensitive, very concerned not to hurt each other. And they're very sensitive with... Uh, with shrines and images, uh, for instance, they won't point feet at images, very careful about what they do with their feet, uh, and so on. So I, I, like, I love that reverential atmosphere in India. Sometimes it goes too far, becomes credulous, but I'd almost rather credulousness than cynicism. Uh, it's much more unpleasant, although credulousness, of course, leads to terrible results as well. But yes, this reverential attitude in daily life, that I think is what we're learning from the, uh, from the sadhana. 
through our reverence for um, uh, Manjugosha and through Manjugosha's reverence for the five Buddhas, we're learning to live reverentially. We're learning to live in solidarity, Manjugosha's own solidarity, the constant theme of kindness all the way through the sadhana again and again and again. That constant theme of, of kindness is uh, uh, a message to us uh, to live with that kindness ourselves. Sagramati was saying to me the other day that he prefer he, he doesn't like me. He doesn't. He's suspicious or, or finds the word compassion slippery and sentimentalized too easily, and prefers the words kindness. And I think it's a jolly good word because it's quite ordinary. Uh, kindness is quite ordinary um, and uh, can be exercised in very easy ways. And you, of course, connects with reverence very quickly, very easily. When you're kind to somebody, in a sense, you're revering them. Uh, you're revering their humanity and wishing to, to benefit them. So, uh, trying to feel one's solidarity with all that lives as, as much as one can. Of course, you can't feel solidarity for all that lives. You can't feel it for all that lives. Uh, because, I, well, I don't know them all. Um, so I, I think of this even with the metta, the fifth stage of the metta. In a certain sense, it's a, a metaphor, not something you can literally do. What you're doing is trying to develop the attitude that whatever living being you encounter, uh, you will encounter with maitri. You will encounter with, with solidarity. Uh, so that the general, the general experience of metta, of karuna, or whatever, has to be lived out in detail. And the general is simply the preparation for the particular encounters, if you see what I mean. So that you, you have the attitude, whoever comes, uh, may they be well, may they be happy. So you're, you're, you're trying to cultivate that mood, that attitude of complete impartiality. Uh, so that whoever you encounter, uh, you greet in the same way. So the practice is, is, is uh, teaching us compassion because we have the embodiment of compassion in front of us every day. Manjugosha very clearly embodies the bodhicitta. He embodies uh, compassion at its highest level, the maha karuna. Um, he embodies maha maitri even. Uh, and so by relating to him, you are, as it were, uh, in, invoking, in your, in, invoking that spirit in yourself. And uh, at times, I've even uh, sort of used Manjugosha, his compassion, when I hadn't got any myself, if you sort of mean. I've sort of, um, you know, felt um, uh, um, very... Uh, uh, even some hatred or dislike, and I've sort of used Manjugosha, I can't explain how, uh, used Manjugosha to uh, um, influence my action. And uh, when I remember to do it, it, it's effective enough. You sort of uh, connect with Manjugosha very quickly and draw on his power in the present situation. So, uh, yes, the, you, you, we... we uh, we use the practice in the, the, the pathways of everyday action 
in this sort of way. Um, with uh, the, the, the next phase, it's, it's uh, rather more difficult to keep alive, but it's very, very necessary. That is um, the, the, the continuing recognition of the way things really are, of continually freeing yourself uh, from the, the either the nihilistic delusion, which of course is accompanied by thoughts of what's the point, um, uh, oh well, why bother, anyway, what's it matter, uh, that sort of thing, in a, in a kind of existential sense. Sometimes it's worth saying that, but in a more superficial sense. Um, but in an existential sense, that sort of deep disillusion, uh, really, Uchedavad, cutting off, cutting off even yourself, as it were. Uh, and on the other hand, that uh, seizing onto easy solutions, um, grand uh, summaries and theories. You know, when people get completely fixated on a particular practice, you know something's gone wrong. Um, it's all right to be devoted to your own practice, but when you conclude that this and this only is the practice, and anybody who's not doing it is just not got it, something's clearly gone wrong. You've turned it into a, a, a shashatvad, into an eternalistic idea. You're holding on to it uh, like a great bludgeon and hitting people over the head with it. Uh, I've done it and I've felt it. Um, and you see it a lot in Buddhism. Um, you know, people are convinced that it's only this method. Um, you know, only by this method of vipassana can you can you break through, and so on. Uh, where we, we we do not understand the extraordinary uh, breadth and um, um, uh, ungraspability. No, un unending can't be ended. What's the word? In, um, limitless. That's the word. A limitless character of the dharma. Um, that, that it can never be pinned down to anything in particular. And when you pin it down, you've lost it. Um, of course, you have insights where one thing constellates everything, but if you then seize on that, you've lost it. So uh, you're trying to have this attitude of, uh, uh, of uh, freedom and openness, optimism, but without optimism about anything, if you see what I mean. And uh, at the same time, uh, continually trying to get back into the Maya way uh, of seeing things, uh, the aesthetic way of seeing things. You can go through the day seeing in the Maya way. Um, it takes, uh, you know, quite a bit of preparation and inspiration and a particular chance combination of circumstances Maybe something somebody says, or something that happens, or something you see, um, work of art, um, that can precipitate you into that way of seeing. Um, uh, you know, just to take at random, I remember coming from the great Miro exhibition at the, um, at, at the Tate Modern um, a couple of years ago, and uh, uh, my eyes had just been changed. Uh, and... Um, uh, I, I saw everything, well, in the way that I think Miro saw things, um, as sort of just there, without any anything definable or graspable or uh, pinnable, downable. Um, and uh, 
at the same time very evocative, very meaningful, very very beautiful. I'm particularly impressed by those, well, the, I can't remember what they were called now, the, the, the five huge white canvases with just a single line across them um, and a few um, squares of colour. Uh, and uh, I could feel your mind trying to say what they are and they're just defying you and precipitating you into a state of non-grasping. Uh, so you know, the best of art, the greatest of visual arts, precipitates you into a state of non-grasping, of pure seeing, uh, which I think is at least um, in the outer corridors of the Maya Way, uh, maybe quite far in to the palace of the Maya Way. Uh, so we should have frequent recourse to this uh, throughout our day. Uh, and uh, we live in a sensuous world, and uh, the sensuous world offers us so many opportunities for uh, just stepping back from the grasping mind into an, this open, appreciative awareness. As to the uh, um, the next, the, the imaginative connection with, with Manjugosha, um, it's, it gets more difficult still to describe what I think that means. Uh, but I think if you can uh, retain some sense that Manjugosha is still in your heart, because of course later in the practice you take him into your heart, if you can retain some sense that he's in your heart, and if you can, for instance, continually uh, have recourse to the mantra, even hear the mantra, um, uh, that, that will all help you to keep a continuing sense of Manjugosha's presence. And one can, I certainly have at times, felt that Manjugosha's uh, uh, mind is sort of with me all through the day. And uh, particularly if I'm doing the practice regularly, which these days I do, uh, I, I find, for instance, verses from the, the stuti come into my mind, the other night I was dreaming the stuti. Uh, you take it in so deeply that it begins to be the substructure of your consciousness and uh, uh, so that you, you feel continually in contact with Manjugosha without sort of thinking it or even really even seeing it. There's a sense of Manjugosha's presence in your life continuing. By the way, I think this is what is meant by the, the, the fourth kind of uh, samprajanya, uh, uh, the, 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 the samprajanya of, well, to cut, uh, you put it in Bhante's terms, uh, of reality, I can't remember what the Pali is, but I think this is what it means, this sort of thing. It means being connected to reality as embodied, in this case, by Manjugosha. So, uh, of course, having images around you, um, even wearing colours connected with uh, the image uh, and so on, all helps and uh, keeping that as a strong presence in your life. Making sure that if you have a Manjugosha image in your room, that you treat it with reverence. Um, I think this is a, a little bit of a, a bad habit we have in the West. They become dangerously close to being art objects. Uh, but 
an, an image should never be really treated in that sort of way. Uh, as sometimes I find it difficult when there's uh, images standing without any any uh, support straight on onto the ground. Partly because I'm Indian trained and uh, uh, that's not done because you're putting your foot in contact with it. The image should really always be above your head, otherwise you're looking down on it. And, and this is not just Indian piety. Obviously the head is the, the point from which you look um, and you identify with most closely. But uh, yes, I think it's important if you have images to treat them with reverence. Otherwise, it's less easy to treat Manjugosha with reverence when you meet him. It's less easy to keep a, a continuing connection with him. With the, uh, the samadhi, uh, very much more difficult to say what you do uh, there. But I think it's uh, closely connected with the, with, with the former. In my own experience, there's a sort of a sense of some possibility in my ordinary consciousness, even something at the back of my ordinary consciousness that is, as it were, working within it. Um, I don't want, don't think anybody should try to get philosophical about this. Don't take me literally. It's a felt sense of a, a power that is working within, within one. That one has, so to speak, through the practice, woken up and that is active in one's consciousness, uh, transforming one. So uh, I've indicated a few ways in which one might try to call on those five um, lessons that the sadhana is teaching us about from the transcendental perspective, but that can be uh, experienced in all the pathways of daily existence, in our daily actions and so forth, with some effort. So I'd say at the end of the practice, it's useful to spend a little bit of time connecting with all of that and even starting to think what you might do to bring that out. And this takes me to my last theme, which I needn't detain me long, but it's one that I personally uh, use and have found extremely helpful. I uh, make precepts for myself. Some of them I've, I've been making, taking for years, maybe for 30 years since I first started doing this. The same ones, the same uh, words I say to myself, may I, etc. Uh, some of them that are more local. Um, you know, the internet hadn't been invented when I started doing this. <laughs> and the internet is heir to many evils. Uh, and uh, it's so easy for one to lose one's day in just idly looking up this and that and the other. And there are some very dangerous areas you can get into if you're not careful. Uh, so uh, I, I take a sort of daily vow of, um, um, of care in this respect. Um, and, uh, you know, distraction, they're, they're distraction machines. They're also very valuable, very useful. But uh, to use them well, you have to be quite disciplined. So, um, yes, it's worth making particular specific vows about what you will or won't do uh, on a daily basis, as it were, when well, you've come out of the practice, but they're sort of in relation to Manjugosha, 
Uh, and I find they have a tremendous power, especially if I take them on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, some of them I, I can drop because I've sort of incorporated that and then I take on new ones. There always seem to be new ones I have to take and new applications of the sadhana that I have to make. But I find this one of the most helpful um, uh, things I've learned about doing the practice, converting it into precepts for myself, particular to me. And uh, uh, they're very powerful. When you come to do the practice next time, to begin with, you may have to reflect on that in your, um, in your what's the word, renunciation, sadhana. Um, you, you may have to reflect on what you've still got to renounce. You may even have to do some confession. Uh, but you create a continuity between each session. Uh, by your last session, you set up the next one. And uh, if you can build your life around the sadhana in the sort of way I've been suggesting, uh, it's, uh, well, really, before taking long, uh, you can gain the uh, the wisdom of the Sukhatas and uh, realize the Manjushri Jnana. Uh, you can sit on that lotus seat before taking long. Here I don't speak from personal experience. I seem to be taking some time. Uh, but we're assured by the practice and I have no reason to doubt it. So I hope that all of this, my uh, exploration of these themes in the sadhana, is useful to you. Of course, they're very much from my personal experience and my interpretation of what Bante explained and uh, others might tell it a different way and uh, I hope that for those of you who are quite experienced in the practice just hearing a fellow practitioner's perspective may enliven, enhance or extend your own practice for those of you just setting out on the practice I hope it gives you some wind in your sails I hope it's uh, set you up a bit to do it. And to you, I would say, don't miss a day. I didn't miss a day to begin with. Um, uh, because then you get a real momentum. Uh, uh, even if you do it badly, do it. Um, and uh, yes, you may have to gabble it, but do it. Uh, I'm sure no, nobody else will say this. Everybody's oh, do what you feel like. No, do it every day. Um, and uh, that the power of the practice will be with you. Uh, and for those of you who've come just to hear a bit more about sadhana, I think everything I've said about the Manjugosha sadhana applies to every other sadhana. And uh, I could probably have given the same talks about any other sadhana, even sadhanas I've never done. <laughs> Uh, all the same applies. The basic structure of sadhana from our tree ratna point of view, learnt from our great teacher, Bhante, is in, in, in the background of what I've said and can be applied in any sadhana. So I, I really hope that these days have been valuable to you. I've very, very much appreciated uh, practicing with everybody uh, and the sense that we're so finely focused together uh, and uh, even though um, you know um, hearing the, the stuti said by somebody else doesn't quite work for me I, I just appreciate 
doing it with everybody else, if you see what I mean. It works at that level. Um, of course it works, but not, not uh, if I was doing, as if I was doing it myself. Something different about that. But uh, yes, and uh, I, I, I felt there's a very high quality of attention and, uh, and dedication and sensitivity and um, well, solidarity. Uh, and I really appreciated being able to communicate something of my understanding because uh, I feel I've learnt so much from Bhante uh, and so much of that doesn't seem to be part of the current understanding. And I feel my last days uh, need to be spent in communicating that. Uh, that's all I really care about. So thank you so much for giving me the, the opportunity to do that and listening so attentively and appreciatively. <laughs>